Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal Rx. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Julianne and I are here today to chat with Shalini Naya Kozlowski, who recently recorded a webinar for Optimal RX discussing herbal medicine use in pregnancy and lactation, which is part of our Conception and Beyond webinar series. Shalini is a practicing naturopath and herbalist in Fitzroy North in Victoria. She completed her Bachelor of Health Science Naturopathy at the Southern School of Natural Therapies. And following undergraduate studies, she completed a Master's in Reproductive Medicine at the University of New South Wales, which further consolidated her knowledge of women's health. Now, while undertaking her studies and since, Shalini was fortunate to have been mentored by Ruth Tricky at Melbourne Holistic Health Group and has worked closely with Ruth to experience firsthand the management of women's health in a collaborative medicine setting. Shalini is passionate about women's health and is excited to bring together her naturopathic and medical knowledge as well as her research abilities to help her patients achieve the best outcomes with the treatment options available. After Ruth Tricky retired in 2018, Shalini opened her own clinic, Inner North Holistic Health, to continue the wonderful work that was started by Ruth at Melbourne Holistic Health Group. And she continues to practice using Ruth's paradigm of collaborative medicine. And I know both Julianne and myself have confidently referred patients to Shalini, particularly for female reproductive health issues and for fertility concerns. And we've seen firsthand the great outcomes that Shalini's approach can foster. So thank you very much for joining us today, Shalini. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to be doing this podcast for Optimal Rx. And we're so excited to have you. I, I can't wait to get started. So just to begin, I'd like to ask when it was that you discovered your interest in this area of female reproductive health? Well, I guess as said in my bio, I found work when I was a student at Melbourne Holistic Health Group with Ruth Tricky. And so when I started working there, I wasn't necessarily already interested in women's health. But as you can imagine, being in that environment and being exposed to the world of women's health definitely piqued my interest. I was really amazed to learn about how herbal medicine was so valuable to the treatment of women's health and that we had access to herbs that had all of these wonderful actions in the female reproductive system that no Western medicine could replicate. And of course, in Ruth's clinic, all these patients were improving under her expertise. And Ruth was always so generous with her knowledge and working there was actually like being able to do a whole extra subject on women's health while I was still at uni. So this led to me applying to do my master's after I graduated, which was really valuable. And consolidated a lot, a lot of the knowledge, uh, a lot of my knowledge about gynecology and reproductive health that is really valuable to my practice today. Just sounds wonderful. <laughs> just like a dream. And I, I just think, you know, as a student and as a graduate, it would be so, such an amazing experience to work alongside Ruth Tricky. You know, she's a pioneering naturopath in, in women's fertility and health. And I know I still actually have her textbook right here next to me right now. Um, and I refer to it all the time, her Women, Hormones and the Menstrual Cycle 
book. Like she's just such a wealth of knowledge. So I think we'd all love to know what were, or should I say, what are your main takeaways from her mentorship, if you can dilute it down that much? Yeah, so obviously there were so many things that I learned, uh, including what I mentioned before about female reproductive herbs that were unique in their action. Uh, However, my main takeaway was definitely um, the concept of collaborative medicine, which I can talk about a bit more. So if you read the forward of, uh, or the introduction of Ruth's book, she talks about the concept of collaborative medicine as a model where patients can get the best health outcomes if all their practitioners, whether they be medical or allied health, work together and thus providing the most effective patient care. So for naturopaths, this means understanding our scope and limitations and referring our patients on for investigations, diagnoses, or sometimes even a different treatment if necessary. Uh, In this model, the patient comes first and we educate them about all of their options so that they can make the most informed choice about what what treatment option works best for them. So in order to work this way, it's then important to have a referral network, for example, GPs that you know in your area so that your patients can go and see them if they need further investigation. So I learned from Ruth about how to communicate well with GPs and other specialists and how to develop my relationship with them so that they understood that I wasn't necessarily anti-conventional medicine. And for a lot of patients, it was, it was just very comforting for them to know that all of their practitioners are working together in their best interests of their health. I love that, Shalini. Hi, it's Julianne here. Hello. (laughs) I do love that collaborative model, and you and I have had many conversations around that too, and I was blessed to see Ruth for my own IVF and fertility journey, which was amazing, and I couldn't have thought of doing it any other way, to be honest with you. But I think the collaborative care model is something as naturopaths we're inherently cautious of, so it's really refreshing to hear that that is one of the key the keystones I suppose of your practice and how that was established and I think that gives all of us confidence to kind of reach out to GPs and specialists a little bit more but I know that you do deal directly with certain IVF specialists um, which is amazing and fantastic to be welcomed into that establishment but I was wondering as a general rule so just you know you see a lot of different patient types but as a general rule how accepted is naturopathic care amongst IVF, well, A, their patients and the patient's family or partners, and also, secondly, uh, the IVF specialists or doctors themselves? And I guess why I'm asking about the patients themselves and their family is because I know firsthand the regime of IVF and, you know, what, what is required and what you need to take and what you need to do. So adding naturopathic care on top of that can sometimes be overwhelming but it's a choice and how do you deal with those sort of acceptances or non-acceptances long-winded question give it a go (laughs) (laughs) I will (laughs) so so I mean for the woman trying to fall pregnant they often come to naturopathy because they have started IVF and it's not going so well uh, and they want to be able to do everything that they can to improve their outcomes and you know achieve their dream of having a baby So they're often very open to any sort of advice that you can give them, Uh, often very open to taking any supplements that will help, to changing their diet if it will help. And I guess with their partners, you know, it's a bit 50-50. Like if there is an issue with male infertility, then 
you'll find that they're probably more on board and then they'll be they'll take all the supplements and you know because naturopathically there's so much that we can do for male infertility and other times if the partners are not really on board if the woman's like pretty happy to go ahead with the treatment it's usually just it's pretty fine and then regarding the IVF doctors I guess it really depends on the specialist as well uh, I would say that in Melbourne um, there are specialists that are really open to naturopathy and how it can help women going through IVF and then of course there are still specialists who are still not convinced about certain aspects of naturopathic medicine so they're a bit hesitant um, so I can't speak for all IVF specialists but I think most of them would agree that nutritional supplements and diet and lifestyle changes are definitely helpful for issues like equality and inflammation and for women who have metabolic challenges that impact fertility like in PCOS or if they've been um, advised to try and lose weight to improve IVF outcomes. Uh, it's also widely accepted that women who seek naturopathic treatment while doing IVF are generally able to get more emotional support because as a naturopathic practitioner you can um, spend more time with them and the IVF specialist doesn't necessarily have a lot of time to spend. Um, and then these women also then, you know, have lowered stress levels, which can then positively impact their treatment as well. When it comes to herbal medicine, uh, it's a little bit trickier. And uh, first and foremost, I think the main concern of specialists is that they're, they're worried about the use of herbal medicine during an IVF cycle, which if not used properly can lead to like side effects and undesirable outcomes like ovarian hyperstimulation and things like that. So most of the time you could safely use herbal medicine in your patient uh, leading up to IVF to help improve like their ovarian function leading up to IVF uh, to help improve their stress levels and all of those things as well. But you would need to have a lot of experience to use them during an IVF cycle. And I was really lucky to train with Ruth in this area where when I started working with her, she was already using herbs in women during the IVF cycle and I could firsthand see how that worked. And this gave me the confidence to not only be able to do the same, but to be able to communicate this with the specialists as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think the, you, you discussed just then the idea around the comfort of the patient, you know, that, that, not relaxation because it's not a relaxing process by any means, but, you know, being able to have some emotional support via different practitioners and everyone being on the one page is something we need to think about with that collaborative care model, particularly in any ailment or condition that requires a number of practitioners. So I think, and obviously fertility can fall into that space and reproductive health as a general rule can fall into that space. But you do mention safety. And one of the reasons we were excited to get you on board for our webinar was around the use of herbal medicines in pregnancy and lactation, but predominantly safety. And so I guess I'm, I'm quite interested to, to know if you have had any experiences where herbal medicines have perhaps reacted poorly with a pregnant patient or a lactating woman? Is that something that you've experienced before? I know you always do your due diligence. I'm not jumping in there, but I'm, I think it's an, an area that we just kind of need to be aware of and think about. 
Yeah, definitely. So I guess when I do use herbal medicine in pregnancy, it's always after, you know, very considered research and consideration of the patient's situation and making sure that I've done everything else as well. So I haven't really come across that many situations where there has been an adverse reaction to herbs that I've given in pregnancy. Uh, the one time that I can think of is often I have patients on herbal mixes for fertility purposes where they fall pregnant having a herbal mixture and then they're supposed to take that herbal mixture until about eight to 12 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, and then in these situations, you'll often find that as the nausea of pregnancy kicks in, they're really just unable to take the herbal medicine. Uh, and then you, you have to do things like reduce the dosing or try and get them to take it strictly after meals. And then eventually they might just have to come off the herbs earlier than expected as well. Uh, another situation, I guess this is not technically an adverse reaction, but uh, if you are prescribing a herb like uh, withania, for example, to your pregnant patient, you have to be really wary that a simple Google search will tell them that withania is not safe to use in pregnancy. In, in situations like this, at the point of prescribing, you need to be very clear and open to them about how you've determined uh, that this is safe for them as well. That's a fantastic point. I think that's one we forget about sometimes. Yeah, definitely. The safety issue is something you've spoken about a lot and you and I have spoken about as well. But with regards to you deciding what is a safe or not safe phytomedicine, what are the tools you use to research that? Uh, and when there's, because often this is not a patient population we want to go experimenting on, right? It, to, to get mm. ethics approval of this would be <laughs> phenomenal, let's be honest. So we need to kind of see most of our research that we do, it will be not enough safety data. So therefore we don't recommend use during pregnancy or lactation. And we know that firsthand as researchers in herbal medicine. So what do you do when you come across those blocks? You know, how, do you, how do you kind of assume safety or not safe? So I, I look a lot to traditional users, but at the same time, also traditional users, I don't get you know, very convinced either. So I'm also very lucky to have had exposure to all of Ruth's clinical experience as well in her you know, 30 to 40 years of uh, using herbal medicine in pregnancy. So that's my main kind of point of reference. Um, not saying that Ruth used you know a whole lot of herbs in pregnancy either like they were just select ones that you know she would use and I was taught to use as well. I also look at current use of herbs in other uh, modalities like Ayurveda so Albuthania for example is a herb that is currently used in Ayurvedic medicine for pregnant women and even today as well. And other things like for example in my lecture I mentioned that I use Abergast in the trimester reflux. And my reasoning was that it has been found to be safe for infants if in infant reflux and therefore using it uh, in pregnancy at the stage of third trimester where the baby has mostly developed is fine. And it, it is also a relatively low dosing herbal treatment as well. So it's a few, it's, I guess it's complex the way that you decide what's safe to use and what's not. Um, and it does come from a mixture of looking at traditional users, looking at clinical experience, and then extrapolating some evidence from evidence that already exists. And then, uh, as I mentioned in my lecture too, 
sometimes you can find studies where they've done randomized control trials on pregnant women, which is amazing that is happening. So, and in my lecture, I was talking about the studies in um, gestational diabetes. So when you have data like that, then it's really easy. That's a really good summary too, because I think, you know, we all know in these vulnerable patient population, safety is the most important thing. So it's this risk benefit assessment where you, you know, you want to help the patient as best you can with the resources that you can. But like you said, Shalini, you've got to go to, you know, you've got to use your uh, reasoning skills and just, and go through and say, you know, has this been used traditionally effectively? Is it used clinically now effectively? Has there been any red flags that suggest that it's not safe? And then where can we bolster our safety data from, like you said, if there are randomized controlled trials or, or whatever else it is. And I really like in your webinar, you, you also emphasize that we should remember that all medicines have this potential to travel across the placenta or into the breast milk. And that's a consideration when we're prescribing. And that's what you've mentioned about Iberogast with, you know, extrapolating that information if it's, if it's safe in, in children, you know. So thinking about how the, you know, the, the absorption and the distribution of medicines is so important. And I really like you sort of give this general rule in the webinar where you said, you know, sticking to the lower end of the safety dosage range with herbal medicines and avoiding introducing extra medicines into the first trimester is often you know, this, this way to go, which is a nice and simple place to begin. If you're, if you're not so experienced, you know, having that very um, conservative general rule is a great place to start. So I, I really like that you cover that very nicely in Thank the you. webinar. <laughs> Gives us a lot of confidence. And you also mentioned in the webinar, lots of different health concerns that pregnant women can experience. And you, you talk about issues like constipation and nausea and vomiting and, and sleep issues and so on. So what would be the condition that you most commonly see in your clinic? And what are your favorite naturopathic treatment options for this? Just to give us an example of something we might come across. Um, so the most common I would say is constipation. So, <laughs> so my go-tos with, uh, with constipation are all dietary, like increasing fiber intake, increasing fluid intake, uh, or prescribing a fiber supplement as well. In my lecture, I mentioned dandelion root tea could be helpful, but personally, I would only feel comfortable prescribing that from second trimester onwards when risk of miscarriage has gone down significantly. Um, and usually I find that all the dietary and fiber and fluid and all of that is quite effective. I haven't really had to send a patient to their GP to get any sort of osmotic laxatives prescribed or anything like that. And then the next most common is the nausea in the first trimester. Uh, so the first thing that you would address there is what prenatal or iron supplement that they're on. And then you adjust that if you think that that's contributing. Uh, and then you would look at their diet and make sure that they're eating small meals that are high in protein and explain to them how blood sugar fluctuations can aggravate nausea. At the same time, you'd start getting them to try herbal teas of ginger or peppermint or they can try ginger and b6 tablets as well and then if all of this fails then you could make up the little herbal mixture as i mentioned in the webinar of the ginger and peppermint and clinically i found that herbal mixture to be quite useful and if anything it's just really easy because 
they don't have to go and try and make a tea if they're feeling really awful. They can just boil some water and drop those drops into it. Um, or they can just, you know, put it in cold water as well. So that, that seems to be pretty effective. The next most common is probably insomnia. Um, and I try to assist by advising on sleep routine, um, prescribing some magnesium at night and sometimes calcium. And then if it's still really problematic, then ruthenia is, of course, very useful. But I haven't had to use this that often. And then the other most common time that I was prescribed herbal medicine is not really a condition, but it's the PARDIS prep mm. herbs, which obviously we, yeah, we might talk about a bit later. I think we definitely should. What's come up for me when listening to you talk about all these things is that there's obviously a lot of uh, signs and symptoms and uh, test results that we we probably need to check off during you know as the trimesters progress to make sure that we're picking up common deficiencies that might crop up. You know, talking you mentioned calcium, magnesium, looking at iron supplements, and and checking I guess different uh, nutrient levels and and those kind of things for all the natural health practitioners listening, what are your, I guess, checklist? What's your checklist of things when you're treating a pregnant woman throughout, you know, first trimester, second and third, that you, that you go to the test results and signs and symptoms that you're looking to, to make sure you're not missing anything. Mm-hmm. So the, the, in the first trimester, uh, the things that I look for are the iron levels and vitamin D levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're, all standard tests that you know either the GP or obstetrician will do um, when a woman first finds out that they're pregnant and also things like thyroid and all of that as well. Um, Iron is really important in first trimester because low iron can lead to pretty intense fatigue Uh, so it's important to address it at this early stage. Uh, In fact if you've been looking after your patient for preconception care then that is actually the better time to address iron deficiency and probably would have been better to check their iron levels if they have come to you, I guess, three months before they wanted to fall pregnant. Otherwise, you just end up playing catch up in pregnancy. And similar situation with the vitamin D. So if vitamin D levels decrease uh, over the pregnancy because a lot of it, you know, is, goes to the baby. So you want them to be taking at least 2,000 IU to maintain their levels if in their first trimester they've come up to be quite good. And, you know, when we say good, we're looking at levels of 75 and above, like around, you know, 100. Or else you would go higher than 2,000 IU daily to try and increase it. In the second trimester, they should be on whatever vitamin D and iron doses that you've decided on in first trimester, um, because these don't normally get tested again until the start of the third trimester. So in the second trimester, you're mainly looking for any signs or symptoms, uh, like for example, leg cramps can start at this stage as well. Uh, and that's where the magnesium and calcium can be helpful too. And then the other main blood test actually that does occur in the second trimester is the gestational diabetes. Uh, and if your patient has had PCOS or, or they are overweight, they'll be at a high risk of developing gestational diabetes. So getting, getting their diet right at the start of the second trimester is important in the lead up to this test if you want them to you know, have a good result. Uh, and so focusing on protein and low GI carbohydrates are really important. 
And then in the third trimester, the iron and the vitamin D gets retested. We're looking for our patient to have optimal vitamin D at birth, as then it ensures that their breast milk will be rich in vitamin D. And this is really important for the baby's developing immune system and also um, for the development of childhood allergies as well. Um, very interestingly, a couple of my patients who have just who have just had their babies were told by their obstetrician to start giving their babies vitamin D. So we might be starting to see a shift in thinking by the medical profession, and soon we may start seeing standard vitamin D dosing for newborns as well becoming a norm. But I'd love to see more research be done on that. You know, for example looking at maternal vitamin D serum levels and how that affects their breast milk vitamin D levels. And so then if your maternal vitamin D levels are good, then it doesn't become like a blanket recommendation that the baby needs vitamin D supplementation as well. So it's all very interesting. So, I mean, it might be a while till we get to that stage, but that's why for me that the trimester vitamin D is really important. And with iron, uh, there can be iron loss at birth if there's a lot of bleeding. So, and this is something that can't be predicted. So it's best to ensure that they have optimal ferritin levels leading up to birth as well. Um, for women who have really struggled with low ferritin in their whole pregnancy, there is, there is an option of um, iron infusion as well in their third trimester. Yeah, I know when I had my little girl, which is nearly three years ago now, the paediatrician at the hospital actually prescribed the vitamin G drops straight up as well. And I would have most likely been borderline or something deficient back then. So I think they might've carried on those results, maternal results and just gone, here we go. I don't remember it being a blanket thing, but in three years that has most likely changed to almost a blanket prescription really within Victoria anyway, right? So it is yeah. very interesting, yeah. And I think that also leads to the other really interesting discussion around what is a, an optimal level you know, it's, um, in my eyes, it's above a hundred. So it's a, it's a challenge, isn't it? For that, but what an important nutrient. So thank you for telling us all about your, how you view it and at what stages of the pregnancy and post-birth you view it as well. The other uh, part of your webinar that you mentioned really in all conditions that you see through pregnancy and lactation is dietary intervention. And I find this a really fascinating topic for pregnant women because, you know, we, we want to use it as a first line treatment but often pregnant women come with other issues like cravings or insulin variations throughout their throughout the day so how compliant do you find that they are with regards to their diet particularly when they're tired and they don't want to make the foods that they need to be making how, how do you encourage their compliance with yeah the, the first trimester is usually the hardest of course because the nausea and fatigue just wipe some women out and they find it really difficult to eat well as you mentioned um, so i try and keep it really simple at this stage of the pregnancy and suggest some simple high protein foods for them that they can have in their fridge or in, in their pantry as go-to's when they're hungry like uh, yogurt eggs hummus beans giving them a recipe for a high protein smoothie that they can prep in the evening uh, and then you know just blend up in the morning can be helpful as well because most often they wake up in the morning with a lot of morning sickness obviously that's why it's called morning sickness um, and in a smoothie you can pack in you know good proteins good fats and lots of fiber as well if i need to get them to focus on fiber if constipation is an issue i usually get them to choose 
one particular fiber that they're going to focus on, like chia seeds, for example, and just focus on having some of that every day, whether they put it in their smoothie or whether they just have it in a bowl with some yogurt and fruit. Um, and so that can just be really easy things for them to eat. But I find that just getting them to focus on the protein thing is helpful. It's a great tip. Yeah. I think having those, like you said, the quick hits. So if you've got something in the fridge, you've got something in the pantry, you've got something ready to go, people are most likely going to stick to that, aren't they? But if we can jump back to herbal medicine again, and I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about withania, which is definitely one of my favourite herbs. Uh, in the webinar, you spoke of it with regards to mental health and sleep support. Do you often utilise withania? I think you mentioned before that it isn't something that you, you use a lot within your patients, but I know it's still one of your favourite herbs in that domain in pregnancy. So how often do you find that you're using it or you're reaching for it and how effective do you generally find it to be? Yeah, so I guess one of the situations where I would, I would, you know, with no question use with Anya is if a woman is going through their second pregnancy and where they suffered with postnatal depression or anxiety in postpartum in their first pregnancy uh, and, they, and they come to me because they want to do everything that they can uh, to ensure that it doesn't happen again, that's when I would more than often just choose to use Withania in their pregnancy as a way to ensure good sleep and good mental health in their pregnancy as well. Uh, as I mentioned in my webinar, um, insomnia during pregnancy is a risk factor for postnatal depression and anxiety. So um, ensuring that they're sleeping well is going to go a long way. And of course, as well as doing that, you would ensure that they are doing all the correct nutritional things and that you've gone through all the diet and lifestyle things as well. And all of these things working together can be really effective. Mm -hmm. And in terms of using other herbs with withania, I don't tend to pair it with other nervine herbs because I'm not confident in using a lot of the other nervine herbs during pregnancy, uh, even though a lot of them have traditional use behind them. Um, a lot of them are able to be used as herbal tea. So I prescribe that to like you know chamomile and lemon balm and things like that i just don't have a lot of clinical use experience and that's my only hesitation uh, so then there might be other naturopaths out there who use all those other herbs all the time in their pregnant patients and i would love to hear more about that and then that would help me decide if i could start using different herbs too but to be honest i haven't really felt the need to as as, as you know, Julianne and Christine probably, that withania is pretty powerful <laughs> on its own. Uh, and as a herb, it not only works on your adrenals, but, you know, it can lift mood and reduce anxiety in its nervous action as well. And like you yeah. said, you know, that, that link between sleep issues and mental health issues is just such a huge link. And if we can... You know, withania is such a beautiful sleep herb, you know, reducing that nighttime cortisol and being that beautiful nervine that it is can really make a huge difference long term as well, you know, over the course of, of a pregnancy to for that prevention of that postnatal mood disorder or whatever it may be. So I think that's great clinical information. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, just to circle back to what you were saying before about partis preparatory mixes do discuss the use of these in your webinar and you mentioned using raspberry leaf to begin with earlier on in the pregnancy and then adding other supportive herbs closer to birthing 
Can I ask, how do you choose the herbal medicines to combine with raspberry leaf? And are there any situations where you would just stick with using raspberry leaf on its own? Or, you know, I guess another way to sort of say that is, do you have a tried and tested, you know, fail-proof Partis Prep mix that you, that you love to use? Um, so with the Partis Prep mix, so I think I mentioned in my webinar that I always put in some St. Mary's thistle in there and because it's not traditionally a Partis Herb, but it's a galactagogue and I find it really useful in um, helping uh, the pregnant, uh, my pregnant patient in terms of bringing their colostrum in their last few weeks of pregnancy and then starting up the flow of breast milk when they've had the baby. Um, so as well as choosing the St. Mary's thistle, then I also have raspberry leaf. And then my usual other two that I use are wild yam and squawvine. They're just traditional partis prep herbs. And I guess in a way, it's just mainly from clinical use experience. It's a tried and tested Ruth mixture that she used as well. And the one that I've used in I guess I can say that when I have prescribed them, I have had a pretty close to 100% rate of natural births. So they are really powerful herbs and they do work really well. So I really do believe in their efficacy. Sometimes I'll add in a little bit of uh, cramp bark um, if my patient has been experiencing severe Braxton Hicks um, in that last trimester. And then that helps to give them a bit of relief as well. And I think I also mentioned in my webinar that for women who are going for an elective caesarean, that's when you probably wouldn't really need to give them a partis prep mixture because they're not going to go through natural labour. But raspberry leaf can be useful for them in terms of the recovery and the involution of the uterus after birth as well. So that could be a situation where I would use raspberry leaf on its own. And also for a woman who's not comfortable in taking a full-on herbal mixture in their last trimester in pregnancy, which is, you know, completely fair as well, then you could just give her raspberry leaf on its own as well. As a simple. As a simple. For someone that was getting an elective, say, caesarean, would you come in beforehand with the St Mary's thistle as a galactagogue for that, for that patient or would you wait? Yeah, I have done that before too. Yeah, to just to help with the breast milk and to help make sure that the breast milk does come in after birth. Hmm, that's a great yes. tip. I really like mm. Samaria's thistle as a galactagogue too. So it's good to hear that you're using it beforehand as well okay. to, you know, ease that transition. I guess if you could summarise, which is, you know, it's going to be a bit tricky, but I guess clinically you did talk about this a bit before in terms of what, uh, conditions come up commonly for you and with the constipation thing I, I noted in your webinar that you said about 80% of your of your patients will present with constipation during pregnancy which is just you know it's such an awful condition to have and and it's so great that we have so many simple things that we can do to, to, to support patients um, to get out of that sort of tendency and 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 that condition but what would be the main symptoms or the main health presentations during pregnancy that would cause you to reach for a herbal medicine? You mentioned withania for a patient that um, is on their second pregnancy and wants to prevent uh, postpartum depression. Is there anything else that just comes to mind? So I guess the things that I've mentioned before, the, so my top two are 
in, in terms of when I look at what I prescribe is probably nausea and partisprep, mm-hmm. most commonly in pregnancy, what I prescribe for. Uh, and then the next most common, I mean, I mean, as I said, constipation is common, but um, I don't use herbal medicine to treat that. So the next most common after nausea and partis prep is probably then the insomnia and mental health support. And now also after finding that research on ginger in gestational diabetes that I talked about in my webinar, I'm really keen to try that as well for my patients with gestational diabetes. Yeah, perfect. I want to move on to our lactating women now and uh, see if we can delve into some herbal medicine uses around that area as well. So thank you for covering off pregnancy. <laughs> That's a big open topic. We'll watch this research space. Hey, but with regards to lactating women, this is, this is, can be a bit of a, a tricky one because obviously we're looking at the transfer of those herbal medicine constituents into the breast milk and therefore into the babe. So, but we do get certain conditions in those women that are so wonderful to be treated with herbs, but often we can't. And one of the ones I see a little bit in, in my clinic is whether they present with thrush or mastitis. And we have some amazing herbs for those types of infections, but often they're contraindicated. So with regards to those couple of conditions, whether it's if you want to choose just mastitis or just thrush, that's your call. But do you have any favorite phytomedicines that are safe to use and that you often reach for for these patients? Yeah, so for both of these conditions, uh, echinacea is really wonderful because, uh, as you know, it's a you know, broad antimicrobial, antifungal, and also an immune stimulant as well. And echinacea, as we know, has been shown to be safe in pregnancy um, and, therefore if, uh, and therefore would be safe in lactation as well. So for mastitis, that would probably be my go-to. And if I were to make up, a herbal mixture for a patient with mastitis. Um, calendula can also be a good anti-inflammatory and lymphatic herb. And bacal skullcap is also a good anti-inflammatory and antimicrobial as well. And these are herbs that I guess don't have data in, the safe, in their safety in lactation, but um, lots of clinical use experience with um, working in Ruth's clinic with using those herbs in that treatment. And our best lymphatic herb um, is poke root, as you know, but that's definitely not safe in lactation, but it can be used topically um, for patients with mastitis. Uh, and then you just ensure that you, whatever topical treatment you've used, the cream, uh, you just wipe it off really well prior to feeding, or you use a nipple shield as well. Um, and I guess for thrush, were you referring to nipple thrush or thrush, oral thrush of the babe and that transfer? Yeah. Yeah. I think I spoke about vaginal thrush in my lecture when I said uh, echinacea and probiotics is a really good combination for treatment of vaginal thrush. Uh, and I think for nipple thrush and the oral thrush of the baby, I have found that to be a good combination as well. Good and safe. Yeah. Mm, great. So echinacea is just something that we reach for in all patient populations. And it's, yeah, it, it is profound though. You're absolutely yeah. right. And it's a lymphatic as well. So, you know, it has many actions in those couple of disorders that we can reach for too. Yeah. If we just think about lactation and how we want to, for a lot of women that can be, milk supply can be a real issue. 
what are your most favorite <laughs> galactic on phytomedicines that you do reach for for majority of those women that want to support their breast milk production? Yeah, so my, um, my standard lactation mix is fennel, fenugreek, goat's root, and, you know, as I mentioned, St. Mary's thistle, my favorite. However, depending on the patient, you might have to add in other herbs like adaptogens or tonics as well because, you know, of the role that uh, exhaustion and anxiety can play in um, breast milk production. Absolutely. So the, my go-tos for those would be uh, Withania again and Shadavari. Yeah, fantastic. Well. fantastic. Yeah. And just um, on that, sorry, Shalene, I'm just going to jump in. Were there more herbs? Sorry, before I jumped into... No more herbs. No more herbs. But I was just wondering, what about food and the use of dietary interventions for the promotion of breast milk? Yeah, so with foods... Um, a really popular thing that people do is make those breastfeeding cookies where brewer's yeast is one of the main ingredients. And it, that, those are really effective. Um, that is a really effective ingredient. Um, and those cookies can work quite well. So, and there are plenty of recipes online that you can find that have brewer's yeast as an ingredient. But as a broad dietary recommendation that you need to be giving to your patients is basically ensuring that they are having a lot of good dietary fat um, in everything that they're eating because this enriches their breast milk in healthy fats and, you know, that increases calories for the baby, baby's growth. And so nuts and seeds, avocado, yogurt, olive oil, um, and also not forgetting to check that your patient is hydrating as well because mm -hmm. often they forget to drink water and without water you can't make breast milk. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great to get back to basics sometimes, I think, you know, just those reminders, even for us naturopaths. So I know I certainly need to be reminded of the simple core things myself. And I too love all the galactagogues that you mentioned. Another one that I like to incorporate sometimes is vervain, I think is a nice mm. nervein to include as well. So I think that was a really great list. And, you know, as, as naturopaths, we can also help talk to our patients about the, the ins and outs of, you know, feeding and, and frequency and duration and, and latching. And we can refer on to lactation consultants and things like that to give them extra support if they need help in that area too. So they do, it's that, you know, getting back to that real collaborative care model where everybody's on the same page working towards the same goal is really great. So I'm sure that all your patients are feeling very well supported. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I was interested, you, you did mention just then, you know, using poke root topically on the breast. And I know in your webinar, you talk about using different herbs topically for different conditions, not just mastitis and thrush, but also hemorrhoids and, and other conditions like that. How do you prescribe topical preparations in your clinic? Can you take us through the process? Do you mix liquid extracts into creams? Do you make your own? How does it work for you? Yeah. So basically I do exactly that. I get, you know, like a hundred grams of vitamin E cream and then decide to put maybe about five or so grams of each herb that I want to use, um, mix that in. Sometimes I, if I want to use calendula, I might choose an infused oil of calendula instead of calendula extract because that topically can be a lot more soothing. And it just makes a better sort of mixture as well. But, yeah, it's, it's really simple. You just um, 
mix in the fluid extract. So maybe not 100 grams of cream. What I do is I put a little bowl on a scale and then you put in maybe like five grams of one herb that you're going to use, five grams of another herb that you're going to use, and then you top that up with vitamin E cream to 100 grams and then you just mix it through. Uh, and then that should, those sort of amounts of liquid herb and cream make for a pretty good consistency. And very doable for practitioners, you know, who yes. are a little bit scared of making topicals. I know that I used to be very hesitant, but, you know, seeing how easy it can be and you can get this incredibly effective, you know, therapeutic cream because you're using these amazing liquid extracts in, you know, in this topical preparation, you get such a good result. And I certainly haven't gone back since then, since doing those. If I can make it myself, I will. So that's great. Now, just to kind of, I mean, you've given us so much, so many clinical ins and outs of what you do, which is very generous of you, Shalini. But to sort of round it out, round out the podcast, what are some of the key clinical tips that you can give to practitioners for treating pregnant and lactating patients? And what would be your favourite relevant herbs for these patient populations? So what are the herbs we should keep in stock to treat these people? So my main tip is to make sure that as a practitioner, you're confident with treating pregnant women, firstly, uh, and that you have a good knowledge of pregnancy and its associated conditions so that you can treat them effectively and also you know when to refer on if necessary. Um, so before being effective practitioners uh, for our pregnant patients, we have to be safe practitioners for our pregnant patients. And that, that is basically uh, my main tip. And after that, it just becomes a lot of common sense in how you treat them on the different conditions. So with regards to herbs, um, so all of, you know, a lot of the ones I mentioned today, but ginger, peppermint, echinacea, lithania, raspberry leaf, cinnamon, St. Mary's thistle, fennel, fenugreek, goat's rue, shatavari, and calendula would be my top ones. That is a good stock. I think most of us will actually have well, all of those predominantly on our shelves, on our dispensary shelves anyway. So fantastic. Um, I would like to say a massive thank you, Shalini, for giving up your time to have a chat with us today around pregnancy and lactation. And particularly a really big thank you for giving us your insights around safety and the safe use of herbal medicines through this, through this kind of time for women. I know personally that it's a time where herbal medicine and the support of naturopaths is profound. You know, it's, it's invaluable. And I think if we can gain more confidence as practitioners in that realm, then the better practitioner we're going to be. So I appreciate your time and we hope to be speaking to you again in the near future. Thanks, Shalini. Thank you. Thanks for having me.